All right. Well, good morning, church. I want to say first, my heart is very full because there are two brothers who I haven't seen in a long while who went off to college who are back today. And it's a gift and a joy. So, so thankful. Thankful for all the young people here. Thankful for everyone here. And most of all, I'm thankful for what Jesus has done in my own life. So I'm going to start with a little story. This is totally going to connect into the Sabbath. But 29 years ago, I came to faith in college. I was a freshman in a fraternity. A brother reached out, invited me to know Jesus. And then Jesus came into my life and just changed everything. Changed the way I thought about who I was, what I was supposed to do in the world. And one of the very first convictions I had, or one of the first times I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, Danny, this is something I want you to do, was about the Sabbath, which was kind of peculiar because a lot of college kids don't think about the Sabbath. But God convicted me that the Sabbath was there for me, and it was a spiritual discipline that I needed to implement in my life symbolically saying, Jesus is enough, right? I have six days out of the week, and Jesus is enough. He can give me enough power, enough strength, enough wisdom to accomplish everything I have to do in six days that I really can't take that seventh day as rest. So this was the first kind of movement of God in my life in college. So I held on very tight onto that. And so I was able to hold it pretty well, maybe about 15 years, and then I was in graduate school. I had a fellowship. I was working in China, and I had an invitation to speak at a conference on a Sunday. And I was like, oh, brother, it's the Sabbath, right? So I was like, but this is so clearly from God. I'm a graduate student. I have an opportunity to give an hour lecture at a conference, all these people there. This is clearly God opening up an opportunity for me. I'm like, no, this is clearly the devil tempting me to, like, you know, break the Sabbath. I was like, opportunity, temptation, ah, and I was so confused. And basically my question was, or my struggle was, Lord, do I have to keep the Sabbath? Right? Is this something that you're obligating me to, or is this something that is given as a gift and that I can enjoy? And so I was struggling with that question, do I have to, do I need to keep the Sabbath? So that's the question I want us to have today in our minds, as we're going to go through a passage with Jesus talking about the Sabbath, is do we have to keep the Sabbath? Do we have to maintain the Sabbath? So the passage today is going to be very short. It's just a few verses from the book of Mark, from chapter 2, and we're going to go through it in even smaller bits, just so we can try to digest it a little bit. So if we could have the first slide from Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Very first thing, when the Pharisees are concerned about doing what's unlawful, maybe I should have like bolded it or underscored it, but this issue of being unlawful, it's not because they had the same framework we have today in terms of civil law. So if Pastor Silas and his disciples are walking through a farm incarnation and picking fruit, that's trespassing and stealing, right? But in ancient Israel, that was not the case. They were allowed to walk through. There was no trespassing. And they were allowed to glean as long as they weren't like hoarding it, taking it like in buckets. We were allowed to walk through and have a snack. That's totally permissible. So it's not that they're breaking any kind of like civic law as a concern about a spiritual law or spiritual rules and understanding of what is the Sabbath. So then I thought, okay, how do we think about rules and laws, right? So if you're an Israelite, or at this time if you're a Jew, you have the books of Moses that tells you God's law, right? So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the, the crux of what God told people. These are the rules of the game. This is how you play the game. So I decided let's start there. I dove into the law and I said, Lord, what are the rules? What are the laws about the Sabbath? So the first place I'm going to start, which is probably where a lot of people start when you're talking about the law, is the Ten Commandments. 
So the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. It's number four on the list. Could we pop it up there, please, from Exodus chapter 20? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. So when I'm staring at this verse, I'm only really seeing two real commands kind of nested in here, right? One is keep it holy. Right, very clearly says right up at the very, oops, can we go back? Keep it holy. And the other one is to do no work. So it's pretty generic, right? Keep it holy, do no work. This is what the Sabbath's about. Not incidentally, I want to show that the scope of the Sabbath is enormous, right? It's not just for Moses, not just for the elders, not just for the people who are hearing Moses' original words, but for their descendants. It's for their sons and for their daughters. It's for the people that work for them. It's for the foreigners who are in the land who might not share the same faith, might not share the same language, probably don't share the same culture. And it's even for the animals, right? It's this comprehensive invitation into experiencing the Sabbath, which is all nested. Can we go to the next slide? It's all nested in the creation, right? For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So an invitation to participate in that rest, which is exactly what Pastor Silas talked about two weeks ago when we started this series on the Sabbath. So I think, when I think of the law, I usually think of rules and regulations that are oppressive. When I'm reading this fourth commandment, I see an invitation into grace, right? To participate with God in this experience of recreation and enjoyment of the beauty and the splendor of everything God has created. God is saying, come with me and experience that with me. Enter into that with me. Not just you, but your descendants, the foreigners among you, the people who, you work, who work for you, everybody is invited into this. So pop quiz. How many times are the Ten Commandments given in scriptures explicitly as a list? That's a great guess. It's not right, but it's a great guess. <laughs> so they're given twice. The second time is also in the books of Moses. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it's almost verbatim, exactly what we just read right here, except instead of being framed in terms of the creation, he frames it in terms of remembering that you were slaves in Egypt, right? Keep the Sabbath, remembering where you came from, remembering what it was like to be oppressed, to have to work 24-7, to be having the very life sucked out of you to get stuff done. And God is saying, I am not like that, right? God is the anti-Pharaoh, an invitation into rest instead of demanding of more and more and more work. God is not a taskmaster. And, not incidentally, all those conditions are still there. So that also applies for us in the way we treat other people, right? We're inviting the people we work for not to be their taskmaster, but to invite them into work that is gainful and renewing and also to find rest and restoration and recreation and recreation. All right. So after that, I said, okay, it's not in the Ten Commandments. There's no prohibition about gleaning, like snacking on kernels of grain on the Sabbath. Where are these laws coming from? So I went through and I looked for the Sabbath anytime in the first five books of the Bible where there's a command associated with it. So I figured maybe it's somehow nested in there. What I found was there's a prohibition against collecting manna on the Sabbath. Kind of a non-issue. There's no more manna. It happened only one time in history. Prohibition against starting fires. They weren't burning the fields. A prohibition, well, indirectly, somebody was condemned for collecting wood on the Sabbath, presumably because they were going to start a fire with it. But 
that's another rule. It doesn't have anything to do with gleaning the grain. And there's another one that's a little bit more indirect. It's an invitation or the command to practice the Sabbath wherever you go. Meaning even if the Israelites at that time were to leave Israel, it's still something they're supposed to carry with them. Okay, so we have a few more rules, but none of them are touching on this idea of gleaning on the Sabbath, right? So what exactly were the disciples doing when they like, broke the law, when they did something that was unlawful? So if it's not coming from the Bible, basically it's not coming from the books of Moses, where is it coming from? It's the traditions of man, right? It's basically religion. It's the human tradition that's been developed over so many years. So from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus is roughly 1,400 years. And that's 1,400 years of the people of God living with this general command of keep the Sabbath, keep it holy, and do no work. And then they're not really sure what else the rules of the game are. So they're having to like kind of interpret every Sabbath, like what is permissible and what's not. So where there's that vacuum, people feel often compelled to fill that vacuum with their own ideas, right? And in particular, the last 600 years before Jesus, so from the time of the exile, we're going to have a lot of biblical history today. So we're going to go in the Wayback Machine. This is the first trip. Okay, so the first trip in the Wayback Machine, we're going to go to ancient Israel. There's one country called Israel. Splits, right? The northern kingdom ends up being destroyed by Assyria, and they basically disappear, blend into the nations. The southern kingdom is called Judah, they're not destroyed. They go into exile into Babylon. But when they're going to go into exile, the prophets keep warning them. And specifically, you can look at like a, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, who warns them, turn from your sins, stop doing what you're doing, or God will judge you and send you into exile. And he's listing off sins. And you're worshiping idols, and you're doing this and that and that. And one of the key sins, one of the key problems is that they're violating the Sabbath. So because they're violating the Sabbath and committing all these other sins, they end up in exile. Now they're in exile. They're kicked out of their land. God sends them another prophet in exile. Ezekiel is with them in exile. He's an exilee, if that's even a word. And he's there with them. And he's telling them the same thing. You know why you're here? It's because you sinned. You went contrary to God's heart and God's word. And you did this, this, and this, and you didn't keep the Sabbath. You desecrated the Sabbath. So if you're an Israelite, your very identity is tied to the land, Right? You're a holy people in the land that God gave you and he saved you out of Egypt. You're no longer in that land. So like a key central aspect of your identity is ripped out from you. If you're an Israelite, what's different between you and all the people around you is you can only worship in one place, one very specific geographic place. Not just in Israel, it has to be in Jerusalem at the temple. That's the place because that's where the ark of God is. They can't go there. They literally cannot go to Jerusalem because they're in exile. Even if they did go to Jerusalem, there's no more temple because the Babylonians have destroyed it. So what does that do to a people, right, whose very identity is tied to their worship and to their land, and that's all been taken away from them? And now they're living in exile, and they look around, and they're like, what do we have left? We have nothing. We have each other, and we have the words of God given to us by the prophets, and we have the Sabbath. And so they start to rebuild their identity, their communal identity. And for the first time in biblical history, the people of God, the Israelites who at this time are starting to become called Jews because they're from Judah, the Jewish people are really developing their identity as the people of God, which is built around the Sabbath. It's an opportunity for the people of God to come together, to hear the words of the prophets, to internalize God's law, to memorize God's law, to spend time in fellowship, to encourage one another toward holiness, and so there's this central focus 
and I, I'm going to say obsession, but I don't mean in a negative way, but like this taking seriously what God had commanded them for many, many years and has now become the focal point of their community. So in a bizarre way, because of their judgment, they had a spiritual renewal. There was a spiritual invigoration of the community of Israel that was never there before. Before they had some amazing kings along the way, but now it's the whole people of God are invigorated with basically wanting to do what's right, the pursuit of holiness. Okay. Then after, when they're in exile, some of the people were able to start coming back. King Cyrus of Persia says, you guys can go back and start rebuilding the temple to your God. So they go back. And soon after, other people go back and start rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the walls. And if you look at Nehemiah and Ezra, they're going back. They're not just building a temple. They're not just building a, the walls. They're building a community. Like, we're not going to do what we did before. Before, we did X, Y, and Z, and now we're starting again. Like, a fresh slate. We're going to build a community based on God's principles as he's taught us through the prophets. And so there's this, again, this focal point, this obsession with the idea of the Sabbath. And so if you look at Nehemiah, he's constantly telling people, keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. People aren't doing it. So then he gets fed up and he's like, okay, Sabbath starts at sundown. On that sundown, I'm going to close the gate of the city. If you're out trying to do business at that last second, you're staying outside the city wall until after the Sabbath. If you're inside, you're not going to come back out. I'm prohibiting work on the Sabbath, the kind of business transactions with the people outside the city. So that doesn't quite do it, then he has to start threatening people with arrest. So the thing is, again, for the people of God, they're just very, very focused on this idea of the Sabbath. So that by the time we get to the time of Jesus, you've had hundreds of years for that to develop, about 600 years for the development of these ideas about the Sabbath. So it's a very clear, well-delineated oral tradition by the time you get to Jesus. So that the disciples are doing what is, quote-unquote, unlawful on the Sabbath when they're gleaning the grains. And a few hundred years after Jesus, it's codified, it's written down. So all of us can go home afterward. Please don't do it now. But all of us after can go home and Google and say like the 39 prohibited categories of work on the Sabbath. And you'll see there's an actual bullet point list, 39 categories. Each one has many, many, many sub things, what you can do and can't do on the Sabbath. And all of this is coming out of the posture, I think, of wanting to do what's right. But it's a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding, a misapplication of the really basic principles we saw before, which is keep it holy and do no work. And so from there, people have developed all these complex, extraneous ideas. All of this is just to say the disciples did nothing wrong. Right? All of this is just to be really clear. The disciples did nothing wrong according to the Bible. They've only broken the laws of man. It's because of a misinterpretation or misunderstanding of the scriptures. So let's see how Jesus answers their question. Why are they doing what's unlawful in the Sabbath? Let's see what he says. Can we go to the next slide? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Okay, so we're going to take another trip in the Wayback Machine. So this time we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. So this is David that a lot of us probably know. David, King David, great king who had this united nation and dominated all the countries around him. But he's not the king yet. He's an ordinary guy who's beginning to rise to prominence. He's a, one of the soldiers in King Saul's guard or army. And he has success upon success. He ends up marrying the king's daughter. So he basically has high esteem from all the people. Originally has high esteem with the king. 
and he's blessed, but maybe he's too blessed because as he continues to have victories, people begin to cheer him and people begin to celebrate King David more than they're celebrating King Saul. And so King Saul becomes more and more envious. David becomes more and more blessed. King Saul gets more and more enraged. And finally he says, that's it, I'm going to kill David. So in this scene right here, what Jesus is referring to, David is on the run. David is literally escaping from his life from King Saul. He goes to the high priest of Israel and says, do you have five loaves of bread or anything that I can eat? Just ask him, do, I have, do you have anything for me? The high priest looks around. There's no refrigerators, right? There's no Costco. They don't have all this stuff around. So he's looking around. He's like, all I have is some of this consecrated bread. You have to take another trip into the Wayback Machine. What's the consecrated bread? In Leviticus 24, it's very explicit that the, the high priest of Israel was supposed to make 12 fresh loaves of bread every Sabbath. And so every Sabbath, they bake this nice bread, 12 loaves, put it on a special table before the Ark of God, before the Lord. You know, one loaf representing each tribe. And then there's 12 stale loaves of bread. Those stale loaves of bread, after they're taken away, that's the consecrated bread. That's food for the priest. And so in Leviticus 24, it says that the priests are supposed to eat it there in the sanctuary. So the priest has a dilemma, right? He knows the law. He has this consecrated bread. He sees David, who's in need. He has consecrated bread, and he's thinking, David is very obviously God's servant. God is clearly with him, blessing him day in and day out. What do I do? This limited resource I have. Okay, it's holy bread given for people who are holy to consume. I want to give it to David. Should I? Shouldn't I? And then he decides, okay, I'm going to ask, David, are you holy? David, are you pure? And David says, yes, I am. Me and all my men, we kept ourselves pure. So the high priest makes a decision and gives him the consecrated bread. Gives it to David. David and his friends are blessed. They eat. They eventually have success because he ended up becoming King David. So you know the rest of the story. But there was a decision made at that time by the priest who had to interpret the law, right? Not the detailed letter of the law. They had to interpret the heart. Like, what is God trying to communicate in this law? Why are these precepts and concepts given to us? And that high priest interpreted it with an eye toward grace, right? Interpreted the law with an eye toward grace that, yes, this is holy bread for holy people, but I'm allowed to share it with people who are in need, right? There's this eye toward grace, and David is the recipient of grace, literally eating the Sabbath bread. Jesus is interpreting the law with an eye toward grace, and his disciples are literally eating, like, the Sabbath bread, right? I guess it's not literal if I'm putting it in quotes, but they're also eating the metaphorical, like, the Sabbath bread by gleaning the grains of barley or wheat on the Sabbath. But both the high priest and Jesus are interpreting the law with an eye toward grace. David and the disciples are receiving the grace because of that right interpretation of the law. And so if we have these parallels between Jesus and the high priest and the disciples and David, then who are the Pharisees like? Like, where's this extra third comparison if we were to have a little chart here? There's another character back in 1 Samuel 21. His name is Doeg the Edomite. And Doeg the Edomite saw this whole transaction. Doeg saw David go to the high priest, saw them converse, saw the high priest give the bread to David. Doeg goes back and tells King Saul, says, hey, that guy, David, you're trying to kill? I just saw him, and he received bread and gifts from the high priest. So Saul goes to the high priest enraged and says, well, they have an interaction. And then King Saul basically says, I'm going to have the whole family of the high priest executed, the high priest and all of his sons. So he tells his soldiers, kill them. 
If you're an Israelite soldier, would you kill the high priest? I wouldn't. I'd be terrified, right? And they were too. They're like, no, I'm not going to kill the high priest. So they defied the king, and King Saul's enraged. And then Doeg, the Edomite, volunteers, I'll do it. So he kills the high priest and kills all the high priest's sons except for one, who is Abiathar, the high priest. So basically, Doeg, the Edomite, can't see what's happening, right? He can't see that the priest is acting as an agent of grace. He can't see the goodness of God in that event. In the same way that the Pharisees can't see the goodness of Jesus and the right interpretation of the law that leads toward grace with the disciples. So Jesus is like David, right? Interpreting the law with an eye toward grace. David and the disciples are receiving that grace. The Pharisees are like Doeg the Edomite, unable to perceive grace, unable to perceive what God is doing and what God's intent is in the law. Now this might seem a little bit like is that really what they would have understood, Danny? And I really think that it is, right? Because the Pharisees knew the scriptures much more than any of us. This was their lifeblood. They didn't have bestsellers in New York Times lists and newspapers. They only had the law, and they meditated on it and studied it and discussed it constantly. But just to make sure that these ideas were like driven home very, very clearly, Jesus continues on. So he answers the first part of the question about you know, why are they doing what's unlawful? He's telling them it's not unlawful, right? This is the whole thing with the pericope with David and the high priest. But let's see what else he says. Yes. So then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't just have the ability to interpret the law like the high priest. He rules over the Sabbath. It's his. It's his reign, his rule. It's his dominion, his territory. Jesus gets to define what's permissible and what's not permissible because it's his. He is owner of the Sabbath. He rules over it in its entirety. And Jesus fundamentally saying, in this statement, there's so much going on about his divinity, about his kingship. You know, the kings of Israel used to rule over the holy people and even a holy land, which is great. Jesus says, I rule over time itself. This holy window, that uh, holy time period that Pastor Silas was talking about two weeks ago. Jesus is ruler over that time. And as ruler over that time, as ruler over the, the very concept and nature of the Sabbath, he gets to designate what's lawful and what's unlawful. He gets to decide what's permissible on the Sabbath. And then he's really framing it, okay, in case everybody missed it with all these rules and regulations that developed over time, let me make it real simple for you. Can you put that back up, please? Let me make it real simple that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You were not made for the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath is not like some great cosmic jungle gym that you have to get through to get to the other side to receive salvation, or you have to climb through all these obstacles to please God. That is not the purpose of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath is for you. Jesus, who made the Sabbath, who is ruler of the Sabbath, gives it to you. It's a gift for you. It is for you, not against you. This is exactly what Pastor I feel like I'm basically preaching Pastor Silas' sermon again. But it's this idea of a divine invitation, right? You're invited to the party. You're invited to celebrate the Sabbath. Jesus, who made you and knows what you need, gave the Sabbath to you. It's a gift. It's an invitation. But like any invitation, like any gift, it depends what you do with it. Will you receive that gift? Will you accept the invitation? 
So now we've come to the conclusion of the passage that I wanted to walk through, and we see some of Jesus' ideas about the Sabbath. I wouldn't say ideas, some of his truths, that it's his and that it was made for us. But does that really answer the question I had at the beginning, which is, do we need to keep the Sabbath? I don't know. Do we? So I want to say, based on so many things, based on Jesus being ruler of the Sabbath, based on it being a gift, based on it being a divine invitation, based on almost 30 years of me having the Sabbath in my life as a source of blessing, I want to say, yes, of course we have to keep the Sabbath. The problem is I really don't think it's true. I don't think we have to. I don't think it's an obligation. And there's a lot of ways we can explore this theologically, and we're not going to go very deep in many different ways. But I want to look at two verses that I think will get this idea across pretty well. And I want to go to the first one in the writings of Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All of these things, these religious forms, they're pointers, right? They're indicators. It's a, a monument to what will be, like a, like a foreshadowing. But the reality is in Christ, And so Jesus isn't just ruler of the Sabbath. He's the incarnation, the embodiment of the Sabbath. You have to go to the Sabbath to find rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He is the embodiment and the the perfect image of what the Sabbath is. And so he fulfills it. But it doesn't mean that it's abolished. It's still there. But it's only finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Can we go to the next one, please? One person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. So when I read this verse, it seems like there's some, some freedom, right? Some aspect where we have to have conviction. If you're, convicted, if you're convicted that the Sabbath is for you, if it's a holy day for you, honor it, respect it, go deeper, go further, Mind the riches of it. It's a gift for you from the God who made you, knows what you need. If you don't, if you've contemplated this, you really think for whatever reason, this is not something that I'm being compelled or called to do, don't let me judge you. Don't let anyone judge you. Be free, but have conviction about it. Be of a clear mind, right? Do that in faith as well and explore what else might God want to be doing in you and through you. If you are someone who's practicing the Sabbath, this whole idea about mining a little bit deeper, is there something we can do to to suck the marrow out of it a little bit more, right? Is there some way we could, as C.S. Lewis talks about in one of his books, The Last Battle, but going up and in, kind of finding like the, the deeper truth within it. Is there some rhythm within that weekly rhythm that God wants you to implement? Some, like a random thing I did for a few months and I stopped, but I started reading the Bible in multiple languages on Sunday morning. The same passage. I would read in English, Spanish, and Italian. And that's how I found out that in the, you know, in First Kings, when God gives bread to Elijah, if you read the Italian Bible, he gets focaccia, right? Now, there wasn't any, like, great, like, spiritual revelation there. But I feel like just making me slow down. When I read the Bible in English, I've read it so many times. Sometimes it's hard to, like, slow down and see it with fresh eyes. So I was like, it was my attempt to spice up my Sabbath, Right? Do whatever you got to do to see if you can slow down and just find time to 
go a little bit deeper with God, to see how sweet it can be to have that relationship with Jesus. And if you've never had the Sabbath and it's not your practice, I want to just invite you, not command you, not push you. I want to invite you. Test it out. Taste and see the Lord is good. Try it out. One month. Right, four weeks. Could you do it for four weeks? Four weeks, turn off your week email, uh, your work email, turn off maybe even your cell phone. Four weeks of maybe being focused on scripture, reading a spiritual book, of reaching out with friends that, you know, need to be encouraged, of maybe seeing if God wants to use that Sabbath time to bless people in the community by doing whatever. But will you just try it for one month and just see, does God want to do something through you? Not a command, an invitation. So finally, I want to answer that question. Do we have to keep the Sabbath? I don't think so, but we get to. Do I need to keep the Sabbath? I think it's the wrong question. It's like, can I keep the Sabbath? May I keep the Sabbath? It's an opportunity to experience God's grace. It's an opportunity to receive a gift. It's an opportunity to respond to a divine invitation. So although we might not have to keep the Sabbath, we get to. And I think that's good news. All right, let me pray. Father, great God and Father, let your name be praised from north to south and east to west on the lips of all people. May they know you. May they love you. God, would you even start here? May you ignite our hearts to be more fully yours, that we might seek you with all of our strength all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.